We start in Isaiah chapter 11. Oh, I get to take off my mask. From Isaiah 11. A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. From his roots, a branch will bear new fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and of understanding, the spirit of counsel and of might, the spirit of knowledge and fear of the Lord, and he will delight in the fear of the Lord. He will not judge by what he sees with his eyes or decide by what he hears with his ears, but with righteousness he will judge the needy. With justice he will give decisions for the poor of the earth. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. With the breath of his lips he will slay the wicked. Righteousness will be his belt and faithfulness the sash around his waist. The wolf will live with the lamb, the leopard will lie down with the goat, the calf and the lion and the yearling together, and a little child will lead them. The cow will feed with the bear, the young will lie down together, and the lion will eat straw like an ox. The infant will play near the cobra's den, and the young child will put his hand into the viper's nest. They will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. From Ezekiel 34. I will make a covenant of peace with them and rid the land of the savage beasts so that they may live in the wilderness and sleep in the forest in safety. I will make them and the places surrounding my hill a blessing. I will send down showers in season. There will be showers of blessing. The trees will yield their fruit and the ground will yield its crops. The people will be secure in their land. They will know that I am the Lord when I break the bars of their yoke and rescue them from the hands of those who enslaved them. They will no longer be plundered by the nations, nor will wild animals devour them. They will live in safety, and no one will make them afraid. I will provide for them a land renowned for its crops, and they will no longer be victims of famine in the land or bear the scorn of the nations. Then they will know that I, the Lord their God, am with them, and that they, the Israelites, are my people, declares the Sovereign Lord. You are my sheep, the sheep of my pasture, and I am your God, declares the Sovereign Lord. And now from Revelations 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look! God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them, 
They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. And then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. This is the word of the Lord. You know, over the course of this particular message series, we've addressed a number of challenging topics relating to justice. We've looked at how to respond to the legacy of racism and, and slavery in America through reparations. And we've looked at, uh, explored what justice looked like in area of taxes and debt collection and the major economic systems of our time, you know, capitalism, socialism, and communism. We've looked at what justice looks like in the Israel-Palestine conflict and how scripture might inform a response to war and violence in what is called just war theory or pacifism. We've covered a lot of ground in these few weeks. So thanks for following along and also thanks for your many wonderful comments and thoughts that you've passed on to me. And if you missed any of these messages, you can catch up of, on, on them at any time at wcfchurch.org, or you can search for Washington Community Fellowship on YouTube or your favorite podcast app. But if I can go back to the beginning of the series and remind you of where we began. We began in the other part of Ezekiel 34 that Jeannie read for us and connected that passage to this idea of shalom that we find in Scripture. We set the foundation for understanding biblical justice, not merely as the righting of wrongs, but as God's way of leading all creation towards shalom, towards a flourishing for all. Justice is how we get to the flourishing for all. Today, we look to this future, and we look at the way Scripture describes shalom in this life to come. We've been singing about it. We've been hearing it read. This vision for flourishing helps us in the work of just relationships in this world that we live in, in the present, because it helps us orient our advocacy for justice. When we have this vision of flourishing given to us in scripture, it allows us to begin from the end. It allows us to look, uh, move from sides to a direction. It allows us to move from individual to communal. So from, be from beginning from the end, from sides to a direction, and from individual to communal. Uh, you've likely heard me share a saying that's become kind of a life axiom for me. You go where you look, or don't look at what you want to avoid, because that's where you're going to end up. It comes from my love of anything with two wheels, especially when they can go really fast. Here's a clip of my bicycle ride down the summit of Mauna Kea in Hawaii. You see, when you're hurtling down a twisty mountain road on two thin strips of rubber at over 60 miles per hour, every input on that bicycle matters. Every second matters. And while you're aware of the dangers of those other vehicles, I think if you hit advance, it'll actually play something, but you won't hear anything. Uh, when, uh, when you're aware of 
the loose ruts, the loose the ruts on the road. You rather have the loose gra gravel on the road. You want to avoid the vehicles that are on the road. You want to avoid the rocks on the side of the road and the guardrails that you don't want to hit. But what's most important is to look where you want to go, not at what you want to avoid. Because the moment you focus on what you want to hope to avoid, that's where you'll often end up. There's a term to describe this phenomena. It's called target fixation. It's where a driver or a pilot becomes so fixated on an object that they inadvertently increase the risk of colliding with that object. You go where you look. It's similar to the wise saying that one of our elders, Kurt Thompson, says, you know, pay attention to what you pay attention to. You go where you look. In matters of justice, often our attention is fixed on the injustice and on the abuse, and for good reason. We don't want, we, we don't want, we want to minimize their continued effects. We want to avoid additional trauma. We want to prevent further harm. But in today's readings, we are given images of where it all leads to when the living God gets involved in matters of justice. When God does justice, it leads somewhere. God's justice leads towards a future flourishing. There is a telos, which is the Greek word for end or purpose or goal that we find. There's a telos to God's activity in the world. We see it in Revelations 21. In that text, that describes a new heaven and a new earth where God will fully dwell with God's people. And in this life to come, there will be no more death, there will be no more mourning, there will be no more crying, there will be no more pain. That's the telos. That's the goal that all of history is moving towards. The prophet Isaiah fills in a bit more of what this future life will look like in Isaiah 11. Jeannie read for us, but I'll remind you here again, the wolf will live with the lamb, the leopard will lie down with the goat, the calf and the lion and the yearling together, and a little child will lead them. The cow will feed with the bear, the young will lie down together, and the lion will eat straw like the ox. The infant will play near the cobra's den, and the young child will put its hand into the viper's nest. Isn't that good for parents? The future is where you don't have to say no, no, Put that down. Keep your hands to yourself. In Isaiah's words, we find that the future of flourishing relationships isn't just for humans. It's for the entire created order. And in, this present, in this present life, predator rules over prey. Those who hold power oppress and take advantage of those who have less power. And danger seems to lurk everywhere. Yet, the hope is, is that this will not always be the case. In the life to come, we find that those viewed as enemies and those viewed as either threats or as prey will begin to live together in peace. They will be at rest with one another. No longer will one group be consumed by another group. In fact, it even appears that those who depend on meat to survive will become vegetarians. Much to the chagrin of us who are meatitarians. But that means probably what we're going to eat is going to taste way better than what we like in meat. God's vision for shalom and flourishing reorients our acts of justice. You see, beginning from the end helps free us when we work for matters of justice. When we work for justice, we may be saddened or angry when continued injustice happens. And we, but when we have this vision for flourishing, we don't run the risk of 
becoming target fixated on the injustice and on the abuse. Often we can get so focused on injustices and abuses of the past, and we try to avoid them in the present, that our attention to those things comes at the expense of paying attention to where God is taking the world. Instead, the shalom of God invites us to look ahead and allow that vision to orient our action in the present. Look to where you want to go, not at what you want to avoid. You go where you look. You know, when the vision for shalom and a vision for flourishing informs our activity in this world, in this present life, it shifts our responses and it shifts our hopes. You know, like many of you, my social media feed was blowing up on Friday afternoon in response to the Supreme Court's decision to repeal Roe v. Wade. My pro-life friends were celebrating with gratitude. My pro-choice friends were lamenting and angry. Their responses reminded me that in matters of justice, they are often reduced to sides. There are winners and there are losers. And that sense comes across in the phrase, we want to stand on the right side of history. Activists use it, politicians use it. In fact, we've all probably used it to some degree, including myself. But I find it very interesting and convenient that often what we think is the right side of history is usually the side that we're on. You know, Friday's decision was on the wrong side of history for many. Friday's decision was on the right side of history for many. But using sides of history to, to feel better about your position or to shame your opponents can be very presumptuous and self-righteous when it's used to evaluate a complex situation. The more complex and entrenched the situation can be, the more difficult it can be to see the right side, at least until sufficient time is given for the decision to actually become history. I find Martin Luther King Jr.'s uh, saying that he has made very popular helpful here when he says, the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends towards justice. That's that, that, uh, saying helps focus our attention on direction rather than on sides. It recognizes that our work towards shalom is important. We want our actions to bend the world towards flourishing, towards justice, but it keeps us humble in our posture because it recognizes that the efficacy of our work for justice isn't guaranteed. Our hope is not being in, on the right side. Our hope is in the one and the direction that God is leading us towards. Our hope is in this flourishing shalom that God has already laid out for the future of humanity and for all of creation. I'm not saying that there aren't any sides. There are, of course, sides to matters of justice, but our knowledge is so limited, our timelines are so short, and so it's not always clear whether we are on the right side. But someone else's knowledge is, isn't quite so limited. Someone else is living according to a different timeline, an eternal timeline. In Isaiah 11, Isaiah continues. Someone else isn't merely reacting to injustice and oppression and trauma. Someone else is moving and acting and speaking in history according to his character. Isaiah's words in chapter 11 point us to this someone. He is the one who will not merely judge by what he sees, 
or decide based on what he hears. Isn't that something that we're all prone to doing? All it takes is a news article, something popping up on our news feed. We judge and we decide based on what we see and what we hear. Instead, we are told that it is his very character of righteousness and faithfulness and justice that he does these things. You know, Isaiah doesn't know the name of this someone, but we do. Isaiah can only call him a shoot uh, from the stump of Jesse. That's a reference to being a descendant of David, one of Israel's greatest kings. And Isaiah looks forward to a time when this future leader will come upon upon whom God's spirit dwells in all of God's fullness. And this someone is none other than Jesus, God in the flesh. You know, when Jesus shows up on ancient Palestine, we find that his teaching isn't full of pointing out rights and wrongs. We don't find him picking sides, at least the sides that the Jew, various factions of Jews wanted him to pick. Was he going to support the Roman Empire or was he going to lead a revolution against them? Was he going to uphold the, the impossible demands of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law or was he going to overthrow them? Whose side was he going to be on? As people followed him, they were the inquiring minds who wanted to know. But when we look at what Jesus actually said and did, we find much of his teaching and activity is about pointing out the signs. Signs of where the living God is at work. Signs of where God's presence is at work amongst them. And he says when people are healed, when people turn from their inward and selfish ways, when people are set free from captivity to their shame or to their circumstances, when people choose to trust and follow Jesus, he points out here. Here's the realm of where the living God is. Here, here is shalom. Here is a picture of the flourishing life that I've come to lead you towards. This is the direction that my father's shalom is leading us to. So what does this all mean for us? As we focus on the end, on the trajectory, and we focus on the direction of shalom rather than on the sides. Well, we move from being just the repairers and the ones who make sure justice happens to participating in their fulfillment. We get to join in. Shalom is flourishing means that we move from, also means that we move from individual rights to communal fulfillment. From individual to communal. Yesterday, I had a chance to listen to Reverend Dr. Randy Woodley, a Cherokee Native American theologian who also runs a sustainable farm in Oregon. He shared about how the Native American view of relationships with one another and with creation often challenges this individualistic and transactional approach to relationships that dominate America and the Western culture, but also even American expressions of Christianity. This Native American view of human-to-human relationship, human-to-God relationship, and human-to-earth relationship offers a helpful reflection of what shalom looks like in Scripture. One thing he said of many caught my attention. He described how the vision of shalom in Scripture is the goal of all relationships, Because shalom itself is relational. 
Shalom isn't just a theoretical state of peace. Shalom is relational because God is relational. Shalom is reflected in the three persons of the Trinity. And shalom is flowing out of the three persons of the Trinity to the, to the rest of the world. It's something that we see reflected in the words of Ezekiel in, in Ezekiel 34. Note the agency of God in restoring shalom and creation. Who's doing it? Verse 25, I will make a covenant of peace with them and rid the land of savage beasts. Verse 26, I will make them and the, uh, make them and the places surrounding them uh, my hill a blessing. I will send my showers down in season. Verse 27, I will break the bars of their yoke and rescue them. Verse 29, I will provide for them a land renowned for its crops. In these proclamations, the subject, I, here, is not me, it's not you, it's not Ezekiel, it's God. God will restore peace. God will make the land flourish. God will set people free from slavery and oppression. God will provide for them financially. The subject is also not you and me. Is not, not, the subject is not you and me, but neither is the object of these prophecies. Because I will build them, I will set them free, I will protect them. When we read them, we think that them is the unholy trinity of me, myself, and I. But God here is the mover and the shaker. And the we here, the them, is not me. The we, we are the beneficiaries. God's shalom is described as a collective, not just as an individual. But God does invite us to participate in this work of shalom building. Shalom is this helpful counterpoint to our sense of individualism. Shalom even informs how we understand ourselves to be made in the image of God. Our individualism mistakenly overemphasizes that there's an image that the image of God is in me. But shalom reminds us that the image of God is in us as God's people. God's image is not most fully reflected in you and I as individuals, but it's reflected in us together as God's people, living in right relationship with God, with one another, and with the world around us. It's together that we bear God's image most faithfully. This individualistic view is revealed in our competition often for human rights. When we say, well, I'm made in the image of God, so I deserve these rights. Who are you to restrict my rights, whether it's what I do with guns or abortion or schools or money. It's my gun, my choice, my body, my choice, my school, my choice, my money, my choice. Now, please hear me out. I am not against human rights. I am for human rights. I am for any initiative that helps those who are oppressed and marginalized uh, be lifted up. But what I'm not for, at least what I can read in scripture and what it says about shalom, is this tremendous sense of individualism that informs our demands for human rights. The vision for flourishing found in scripture reminds us that individual human rights are framed in this vision of shalom for all of creation. An individual human right should not come at the expense of shalom for all. Because this is the telos. This is the end. And the living God is moving all of history and all creation towards that end. So, 
The idea of shalom found in scripture conveys this vision of flourishing for all. That's what sets, that's our North Star. Shalom is about flourishing for all humans with God, for humans with one another, and for humans with the created order. And so we engage in matters of justice in this present life, but with that end in mind. And God is the one who gets us there because God is faithful and righteous and fully embodied in the person of Jesus. And because of Jesus' activity, we move from focusing on sides of justice to the direction that he leads us in. Because Jesus is the good shepherd, because Jesus is the wise king who sees all, and any direction he leads will always be towards this future of flourishing for all. So that frees us. That frees us from the worry of getting it right or wrong or not doing enough in this life. It frees us from disappointment when things don't go the way that we expect because we know Jesus has got it. Jesus knows what's going on. Jesus knows what he's doing in the world. All we are called to do is simply follow in his footsteps because God is already at work. Because shalom is a fulfillment of this vision as a community of God, as a community of God's people, it's not just individual rights. Our engagement for justice in this present life is to be done with God's people and not alone. Our work for justice is framed in, by how it leads us towards flourishing for all, not just flourishing for me in my terms. Friends, we may be finishing this series on just relationships in a just world, but our work in participating in God's shalom is far from finished. There is much to be done. God, God is still at work, and God is still inviting each of us to join in God's work of justice that leads towards this future flourishing for all. Will you join Jesus? Will you find yourself caught up in a kind of flourishing for your life that you could never have imagined for yourself? May you hear the voice of God. May you be empowered by his spirit to do the work of shalom building together with Jesus, our King. Amen. reading. We start in Isaiah chapter 11. Oh, I get to take off my mask. From Isaiah 11. A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. From his roots, a branch will bear new fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest upon him the spirit of wisdom and of understanding, the spirit of counsel and of might, the spirit of knowledge and fear of the Lord, and he will delight in the fear of the Lord. He will not judge 
by what he sees with his eyes or decide by what he hears with his ears. But with righteousness, he will judge the needy. With justice, he will give decisions for the poor of the earth. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. With the breath of his lips, he will slay the wicked. Righteousness will be his belt and faithfulness the sash around his waist. The wolf will live with the lamb, the leopard will lie down with the goat, the calf and the lion and the yearling together, and a little child will lead them. The cow will feed with the bear, the young will lie down together, and the lion will eat straw like an ox. The infant will play near the cobra's den, and the young child will put his hand into the viper's nest. They will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. From Ezekiel 34. I will make a covenant of peace with them and rid the land of the savage beasts so that they may live in the wilderness and sleep in the forest in safety. I will make them and the places surrounding my hill a blessing. I will send down showers in season. There will be showers of blessing. The trees will yield their fruit and the ground will yield its crops. The people will be secure in their land. They will know that I am the Lord when I break the bars of their yoke and rescue them from the hands of those who enslaved them. They will no longer be plundered by the nations, nor will wild animals devour them. They will live in safety, and no one will make them afraid. I will provide for them a land renowned for its crops, and they will no longer be victims of famine in the land or bear the scorn of the nations. Then they will know that I, the Lord their God, am with them, and that they, the Israelites, are my people, declares the Sovereign Lord. You are my sheep, the sheep of my pasture, and I am your God, declares the Sovereign Lord. And now from Revelations 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. And then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. 
This is the word of the Lord. You know, over the course of this particular message series, we've addressed a number of challenging topics relating to justice. We've looked at how to respond to the legacy of racism and, and slavery in America through reparations. And we've looked at, uh, explored what justice looked like in area of taxes and debt collection and the major economic systems of our time, you know, capitalism, socialism, and communism. We've looked at what justice looks like in the Israel-Palestine conflict and how scripture might inform a response to war and violence in what is called just war theory or pacifism. We've covered a lot of ground in these few weeks, so thanks for following along and also thanks for your many wonderful comments and thoughts that you've passed on to me. And if you missed any of these messages, you can catch up of, on, on them at any time at wcfchurch.org, or you can search for Washington Community Fellowship on YouTube or your favorite podcast app. But if I can go back to the beginning of the series and remind you of where we began. We began in the other part of Ezekiel 34 that Jeannie read for us and connected that passage to this idea of shalom that we find in Scripture. We set the foundation for understanding biblical justice, not merely as a righting of wrongs, but as God's way of leading all creation towards shalom, towards a flourishing for all. Justice is how we get to the flourishing for all. Today, we look to this future, and we look at the way Scripture describes shalom in this life to come. We've been singing about it. We've been hearing it read. This vision for flourishing helps us in the work of just relationships in this world that we live in, in the present, because it helps us orient our advocacy for justice. When we have this vision of flourishing given to us in Scripture, it allows us to begin from the end. It allows us to look, uh, move from sides to a direction. It allows us to move from individual to communal. So from, from beginning from the end, from sides to a direction, and from individual to communal. Uh, you've likely heard me share a saying that's become kind of a life axiom for me. You go where you look, or don't look at what you want to avoid, because that's where you're going to end up. It comes from my love of anything with two wheels, especially when they can go really fast. Here's a clip of my bicycle ride down the summit of Mauna Kea in Hawaii. You see, when you're hurtling down a twisty mountain road on two thin strips of rubber at over 60 miles per hour, every input on that bicycle matters. Every second matters. And while you're aware of the dangers of those other vehicles, I think if you hit advance, it'll actually play something, but you won't hear anything. Uh, when, uh, when you're aware of the loose ruts, the loose, the ruts on the road, you're aware of the loose gra gravel on the road, you want to avoid the vehicles that are on the road, you want to avoid the rocks on the side of the road and the guardrails that you don't want to hit. But what's most important is to look where you want to go, not at what you want to avoid. Because the moment you focus on what you want to hope to avoid, that's where you'll often end up. There's a term to de describe this phenomena. It's called target fixation. 
It's where a driver or a pilot becomes so fixated on an object that they inadvertently increase the risk of colliding with that object. You go where you look. It's similar to the wise saying that one of our elders, Kurt Thompson, says, you know, pay attention to what you pay attention to. You go where you look. In matters of justice, often our attention is fixed on the injustice and on the abuse, and for good reason. We don't want, we, we don't want, we want to minimize their continued effects. We want to avoid additional trauma. We want to prevent further harm. But in today's readings, we are given images of where it all leads to when the living God gets involved in matters of justice. When God does justice, it leads somewhere. God's justice leads towards a future flourishing. There is a telos, which is the Greek word for end or purpose or goal that we find. There's a telos to God's activity in the world. We see it in Revelations 21, in that text that describes a new heaven and a new earth where God will fully dwell with God's people. And in this life to come, there will be no more death, there will be no more mourning, there will be no more crying, there will be no more pain. That's the telos. That's the goal that all of history is moving towards. The prophet Isaiah fills in a bit more of what this future life will look like. In Isaiah 11, Jeannie read for us, but I'll remind you here again, the wolf will live with the lamb, the leper will lie down with the goat, the calf and the lion and the yearling together, and a little child will lead them. The cow will feed with the bear, the young will lie down together, and the lion will eat straw like the ox. The infant will play near the cobra's den, and the young child will put its hand into the viper's nest. Isn't that good for parents? The future is where you don't have to say no, no, put that down, keep your hands to yourself. In Isaiah's words, we find that the future of flourishing relationships isn't just for humans. It's for the entire created order. In this, present, in this present life, predator rules over prey. Those who hold power oppress and take advantage of those who have less power. And danger seems to lurk everywhere. Yet, the hope is, is that this will not always be the case. In the life to come, we find that those viewed as enemies and those viewed as either threats or as prey will begin to live together in peace. They will be at rest with one another. No longer will one group be consumed by another group. In fact, it even appears that those who depend on meat to survive will become vegetarians. Much to the chagrin of us who are meatitarians. But that means probably what we're going to eat is going to taste way better than what we like in meat. God's vision for shalom and flourishing reorients our acts of justice. You see, beginning from the end helps free us when we work for matters of justice. When we work for justice, we may be saddened or angry when continued injustice happens. And we, but when we have this vision for flourishing, we don't run the risk of becoming target fixated on the injustice and on the abuse. Often we can get so focused on injustices and abuses of the past, and we try to avoid them in the present, that our attention to those things comes at the expense of paying attention to where God is taking the world. Instead, the shalom of God invites us to look ahead and allow that vision to orient our action in the present. Look to where you want to go, not at what you want to avoid. 
You go where you look. You know, when the vision for shalom and a vision for flourishing informs our activity in this world, in this present life, it shifts our responses and it shifts our hopes. You know, like many of you, my social media feed was blowing up on Friday afternoon in response to the Supreme Court's decision to repeal Roe v. Wade. My pro-life friends were celebrating with gratitude. My pro-choice friends were lamenting and angry. Their responses reminded me that in matters of justice, they are often reduced to sides. There are winners and there are losers. And that sense comes across in the phrase, we want to stand on the right side of history. Activists use it, politicians use it. In fact, we've all probably used it to some degree, including myself. But I find it very interesting and convenient that often what we think is the right side of history is usually the side that we're on. You know, Friday's decision was on the wrong side of history for many. Friday's decision was on the right side of history for many. But using sides of history to to feel better about your position or to shame your opponents can be very presumptuous and self-righteous when it's used to evaluate a complex situation. The more complex and entrenched the situation can be, the more difficult it can be to see the right side, at least until sufficient time is given for the decision to actually become history. I find Martin Luther King Jr.'s uh, saying that he has made very popular helpful here when he says, the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends towards justice. That's that... that uh, saying helps focus our attention on direction rather than on sides. It recognizes that our work towards shalom is important. We want our actions to bend the world towards flourishing, towards justice, but it keeps us humble in our posture because it recognizes that the efficacy of our work for justice isn't guaranteed. Our hope is not being in, on the right side. Our hope is in the one and the direction that God is leading us towards. Our hope is in this flourishing shalom that God has already laid out for the future of humanity and for all of creation. I'm not saying that there aren't any sides. There are, of course, sides to matters of justice, but our knowledge is so limited, our timelines are so short, and so it's not always clear whether we are on the right side. But someone else's knowledge isn't quite so limited. Someone else is living according to a different timeline, an eternal timeline. In Isaiah 11, Isaiah continues. Someone else isn't merely reacting to injustice and oppression and trauma. Someone else is moving and acting and speaking in history according to his character. Isaiah's words in chapter 11 point us to this someone. He is the one who will not merely judge by what he sees or decide based on what he hears. Isn't that something that we're all prone to doing? All it takes is a news article, something popping up on our news feed. We judge and we decide based on what we see and what we hear. Instead, we are told that it is his very character of righteousness and faithfulness and justice that he does these things. You know, Isaiah doesn't know the name of this someone, but we do. 
Isaiah can only call him a shoot uh, from the stump of Jesse. That's a reference to being a descendant of David, one of Israel's greatest kings. And Isaiah looks forward to a time when this future leader will come upon upon whom God's spirit dwells in all of God's fullness. And this someone is none other than Jesus, God in the flesh. You know, when Jesus shows up in ancient Palestine, we find that his teaching isn't full of pointing out rights and wrongs. We don't find him picking sides, at least the sides that the Jew, various factions of Jews wanted him, wanted him to pick. Was he going to support the Roman Empire or was he going to lead a revolution against them? Was he going to uphold the, the impossible demands of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law or was he going to overthrow them? Whose side was he going to be on? As people followed him, they were the inquiring minds who wanted to know. But when we look at what Jesus actually said and did, we find much of his teaching and activity is about pointing out the signs, signs of where the living God is at work, signs of where God's presence is at work amongst them. And he says when people are healed, when people turn from their inward and selfish ways, when people are set free from captivity to their shame or to their circumstances, when people choose to trust and follow Jesus, he points out here. Here's the realm of where the living God is. Here, here is shalom. Here is a picture of the flourishing life that I've come to lead you towards. This is the direction that my father's shalom is leading us to. So what does this all mean for us as we focus on the end, on the trajectory, and we focus on the direction of shalom rather than on the sides? Well, we move from being just the repairers and the ones who make sure justice happens to participating in their fulfillment. We get to join in. Shalom is flourishing means that we move from, also means that we move from individual rights to communal fulfillment, from individual to communal. You know, yesterday I had a chance to listen to Reverend Dr. Randy Woodley, a Cherokee Native American theologian who also runs a sustainable farm in Oregon. He shared about how the Native American view of relationships with one another and with creation often challenges this individualistic and transactional approach to relationships that dominate America and the Western culture, but also even American expressions of Christianity. This Native American view of human-to-human relationship, human-to-God relationship, and human-to-earth relationship offers a helpful reflection of what shalom looks like in Scripture. One thing he said of many caught my attention. He described how the vision of shalom in Scripture is the goal of all relationships, because shalom itself is relational. Shalom isn't just a theoretical state of peace. Shalom is relational because God is relational. Shalom is reflected in the three persons of the Trinity. And shalom is flowing out of the three persons of the Trinity to the the rest of the world. It's something that we see reflected in the words of Ezekiel in, in Ezekiel 34. Note the agency of God in restoring shalom and creation. Who's doing it? Verse 25, 
I will make a covenant of peace with them and rid the land of savage beasts. Verse 26, I will make them and, uh, make them and the places surrounding them uh, my hill a blessing. I will send my showers down in season. Verse 27, I will break the bars of their yoke and rescue them. Verse 29, I will provide for them a land renowned for its crops. In these proclamations, the subject, I, here, is not me, it's not you, it's not Ezekiel, it's God. God will restore peace. God will make the land flourish. God will set people free from slavery and oppression. God will provide for them financially. The subject is also not you and me. Is not, not, the subject is not you and me, but neither is the object of these prophecies. Because I will build them, I will set them free, I will protect them. When we read them, we think that them is the unholy trinity of me, myself, and I. But God here is the mover and the shaker. And the we here, the them, is not me. The we, we are the beneficiaries. God's shalom is described as a collective, not just as an individual. But God does invite us to participate in this work of shalom building. Shalom is this helpful counterpoint to our sense of individualism. Shalom even informs how we understand ourselves to be made in the image of God. Our individualism mistakenly overemphasizes that there's an image that the image of God is in me. But shalom reminds us that the image of God is in us as God's people. God's image is not most fully reflected in you and I as individuals, but it's reflected in us together as God's people, living in right relationship with God, with one another, and with the world around us. It's together that we bear God's image most faithfully. This individualistic view is revealed in our competition often for human rights. When we say, well, I'm made in the image of God, so I deserve these rights. Who are you to restrict my rights, whether it's what I do with guns or abortion or schools or money. It's my gun, my choice, my body, my choice, my school, my choice, my money, my choice. Now, please hear me out. I am not against human rights. I am for human rights. I am for any initiative that helps those who are oppressed and marginalized uh, be lifted up. But what I'm not for, at least what I can read in Scripture and what it says about shalom, is this tremendous sense of individualism that informs our demands for human rights. The vision for flourishing found in Scripture reminds us that individual human rights are framed in this vision of shalom for all of creation. An individual human right should not come at the expense of shalom for all. Because this is the telos. This is the end. And the living God is moving all of history and all creation towards that end. So, the idea of shalom found in Scripture conveys this vision of flourishing for all. That's what sets, that's our North Star. Shalom is about flourishing for all humans with God, for humans with one another, and for humans with the created order. And so we engage in matters of justice in this present life, but with that end in mind. And God is the one who gets us there because God is faithful and righteous and fully embodied in the person of Jesus. 
And because of Jesus' activity, we move from focusing on sides of justice to the direction that he leads us in. Because Jesus is the good shepherd, because Jesus is the wise king who sees all, and any direction he leads will always be towards this future of flourishing for all. So that frees us. That frees us from the worry of getting it right or wrong or not doing enough in this life. It frees us from disappointment when things don't go the way that we expect because we know Jesus has got it. Jesus knows what's going on. Jesus knows what he's doing in the world. All we are called to do is simply follow in his footsteps because God is already at work. Because shalom is a fulfillment of this vision as a community of God, as a community of God's people, it's not just individual rights. Our engagement for justice in this present life is to be done with God's people and not alone. Our work for justice is framed in, by how it leads us towards flourishing for all, not just flourishing for me in my terms. Friends, we may be finishing this series on just relationships in a just world, but our work in participating in God's shalom is far from finished. There is much to be done. God, God is still at work, and God is still inviting each of us to join in God's work of justice that leads towards this future flourishing for all. Will you join Jesus? Will you find yourself caught up in a kind of flourishing for your life that you could never have imagined for yourself? May you hear the voice of God. May you be empowered by his spirit to do the work of shalom building together with Jesus, our King. Amen.